studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And before I actually get into today's subject matter, I'd actually like to talk a little bit about that last category, that is to say, TV shows. For some reason, I've been... The fanboy muse has kind of taken me to a Batman reading project lately. And so what that's actually sort of mushroomed into is a sort of, uh, I guess, Batman binge, where it's now officially beyond comics and we're getting into movies and and TV and all this other stuff. So one of the things I ended up doing was watching some episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Now, for those of you who don't remember, it's kind of easy to forget about now. But for as beloved and well-regarded as Batman the Animated Series is today, it didn't start off that way. You know, most people, when news came down the pipeline of, you know, hey, there is in fact going to be a new Batman cartoon show coming on in the uh, fall of 1992. Guys, you got to understand, what most people were thinking was filmation-type stuff, because up to then, that's really all that cartoons for the most part had been. I mean, you got a few exceptions here and there, but for the most part, I think what most people were expecting was more like Filmation or Hanna-Barbera. Not so much in terms of animation quality, but just in terms of tone and style. You know, something that has, uh, you know, a good moral at the end of every episode. Remember, kids, you know, don't take candy from strangers. You know, stuff, stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, don't get me wrong, but that's not what Batman the Animated Series is, but at the same time, that's not really what anybody was expecting. People were expecting more of the same, I guess is the way to put it. And when I say people, I mean most people. I seem to be the only person in the room who believed in this thing from the get-go. And the reason for that, if I had to, you know, 
put a thumbtack in the map and say, here's where it all started. The moment I would choose is when I came home from an excursion to the mall one day armed with a copy of Comic Scene magazine. And they did a cover story about Batman the Animated Series. And there was this... Uh, I, I probably should have looked it up before starting to record, but hey, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Basically, there was... I want to say it was a, a yellow background uh, for the cover. And then you had a picture of Batman swinging through the air. Batman from the animated series uh, swinging, from, swinging through the air. And it's like he's reaching towards the camera. Like he's going to reach out and grab you. And that makes me think of a Steve Miller song. But anyway, so... The, the cover story, basically, it was kind of a preview of what the animated series was going to be because going off memory this was at least a month or two before the show actually premiered and so at that time all anybody had to work with was uh, just very brief TV spots that were about it and that was pretty much it so this was the first in-depth coverage of Batman the Animated Series that I personally am aware of I mean there may have been something prior to this and I just never heard about it but this is the first uh, comic scene magazine was cover story this was the first time somebody put anim uh, Batman the animated series under the microscope so one of the things though that I remember is that it was primary it wasn't just an interview with Alan Burnett because I swear to think that Bruce Tim and Paul Dini uh, were quoted in, in in the article as well but I swear to think it was primarily Alan Burnett's interview right and it was basically an explanation of you know some of the villains that are going to be used on the show some of the voices and also there was a, a listing of the character model sheets that were actually used on the show and some of them would get a, a little bit of a nip and a tuck here and there but more or less this is what the show would look like and i remember just absorbing this thing and this was the first time that I realized that this isn't going to be just another, uh, we, you know, after school afternoon type of cartoon show along the lines of G.I. Joe or Ninja Turtles or something like that. This was going to be something different. This was going to be something special. And so that was, you know, my first real glimpse of it. And so as a result, you know, Batman, the animated series... It was a little bit of a slow burn for a lot of people. It took them time to realize what this show really is. And I think the reason for that, apart from just prejudices that they had about what animation had been up to that point, I think one of the reasons that it was a little bit of a slow burn for a lot of people is because if you actually look at the first shows, that, the first several shows that were broadcast, it's a little bit of an uneven bunch. I mean... You had stuff like The Cat and the Claw and On Leather Wings and a couple of other stuff. But it was, from the outside looking in, it looks like it took the creative staff time to find the, their sea legs with Batman. And I don't know if that's actually totally true. Because if you look at the, the episodes and the order in which they were produced, I think you could say that really they started off fairly strong. They had for their second batch of episodes, I guess kind of a sophomore slump. And then they picked it back up with more solid episodes as they went along. And then the series, I don't know if it necessarily got better and better and better, but there was a standard of quality that it typically reached toward and more often than not succeeded at, you know? So that's, that's just the, 
my memory of things. That's my sense of it, right? But one of the things that kind of came out of, you know, watching a shitload of Batman, the animated series episodes, was that my favorite, and I mean like my absolute favorite episodes, they tended to be about some of the sadder, more tragic villains. And not necessarily all of them. Not all of my favorite episodes are that way, but a lot of them are. And so... I guess in the top stratosphere, you've got On Leather Wings, which I think is really only on the list because of the fact that this was the first... For some reason, I want to exempt The Cat and the Claw, Part 1, because from you know what I saw first, even though The Cat and the Claw, Part 1, was what I saw first, and that's really all there is. It, it, for some reason, I don't know why, I just don't regard The Cat and the Claw, Part 1. Maybe it was the fact that it was... It showed up, I think that was actually, I think that debuted in primetime, actually, on Sunday. So the actual official launch for Batman the Animated Series was on Leather Wings the following Monday. And that was like my first real taste of what this show is. And that was also the first show that they produced, so it sort of makes sense to lead off with that. And the quality of the animation was unlike anything that was on TV at the time. You know, I had never seen an animated show like this before, you know, so just from the outset, from a technical point of view, this was already a, a, a cut above, you know, just love this. But it's not really the villain of the piece. He's not really a tragic villain. I mean, he pretty much did it to himself, you know, when you really think about it. So from there, you get into Two-Face. And really, this is Harvey's story predominantly, but to the degree that it's about Two-Face, it's really his grudge with Rupert Thorne. And really, Batman is more of an interloper and all of that. Two-Face's grudge is not really specifically against Batman. You know, Batman's getting in the way, but he's not specifically the target, you know? And this is a guy who's been, you know, victimized by somebody and he's out to get his pound of flesh is ultimately what it comes down to, you know, and that kind of forms, I don't want to say a template, but that same thing can be said of other, of some of the best that Batman, the animated series has to offer. And obviously I think what most people are probably thinking of there is heart of ice, which apart from being an amazing piece of television is it's it's in a a, a a very captivating reinvention of Mr. Freeze. You know, who is this guy and what is he really about? You know, and up to then, I would almost want to say that Mr. Freeze was kind of an also-ran among, among Batman's rogues gallery. And now here he is. It's like, you, how can you not cry for the guy? You know, and, and then you've got Batman kind of caught in between Mr. Freeze's rivalry with Ferris Boyle, his revenge plans against Ferris Boyle. And, you know, Batman doesn't want to have to hurt Mr. Freeze because the guy, when you think about it, I mean, hasn't he been through enough already? But, you know, Batman's got to do what Batman's got to do. And he's not happy about having to do it, but that is where he finds himself, you know? And this was really the first, the first time that Batman the animated series they didn't really make a TV show what they made was like a a 22 minute film 
you know, because even as a kid, I realized that this is not your average cartoon show. This is not, this is not an average episode of an average cartoon show. This is an amazing episode of an amazing TV show, you know? And that was very apparent to me. Even as a kid, I was sitting there watching this stuff as 11 or 12 years old and thinking, I have never seen this done on TV before, you know? This was a new idea. And I think there's a sense in which this maybe, and I don't mean this in necessarily like a pejorative way, but this almost became like a template for other things that other TV shows did. And it's almost like they don't get it. I mean, I don't, it, it's it's tough to describe. I should probably do a separate episode about all this stuff at some point. But anyway, just to kind of move right along here. Next, you've got Feet of Clay. And again, I'd almost want to put Clayface into the same category as Mr. Freeze in that he really wasn't one of what I would consider to be the heavy hitters of Batman's rogues gallery. You know, he wasn't a, a Two-Face. He wasn't a Joker. <clears throat> you know, he wasn't a Catwoman. He wasn't a Scarecrow. You know, he was just fucking, he's kind of there. And honestly, I mean, I knew Two-Face, sorry, I knew Clayface best from uh, a... Clayface story that was reprinted in the greatest Joker stories ever told where basically the Joker and Clayface kind of went to war with each other. And then, you know, you had Batman in between trying to take them both down and it was a fun little story, but that was really primarily what I associated with Clayface. And that is not the character that was on Batman, the animated series. I mean, whether you regard that as good or bad, they very much did their own thing with Matt Hagen. There's no question about that. So, and again, you have a sort of a, a template where the villain has a very understandable point of view. I mean, he's not quite sympathetic just because of, you know, the choices that he's made and, you know, that led him to this point. And then God knows the choices he makes after that, you know, as a result of, you know, what's happened to him. You know, he's not really sympathetic as such, but he's, you understand where he's coming from. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So... Anyway, and then from there, rounding everything out in my, uh, I guess this is really my top five list. This is The Laughing Fish. And honestly, the reason this is in there is, you know, the Joker was played as a more kind of a fun villain on the show. I mean, what I think that the viewer was always supposed to infer is that the Joker was always a murderer. We just never saw him do it. But don't kid yourself. He was a murderer. And this is a loose adaptation of the comic book story, The Laughing Fish, and then also The Sign of the Joker. So, you know, there is that to think about. And, I, and I'm and i a huge fan of, of that story. You know, the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers, like the concluding two issues of their run on Batman. And really enjoyed that. And the, the episode kind of captured the same tone that I always got from, from the comics, you know, that plays for me. So then from there you start getting into, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but this is kind of more like the bottom tier of my favorite episodes. You've got nothing to fear, which really gets into Batman's head. You know, what is it that drives this iteration of Batman? And I knew that answer from the comics, but the answer in the TV show was a slight variation on that. It was different enough to be interesting, but it was close enough to the comics to be persuasive, you know? So that's an interesting, you know, wire act to have to walk. Following that is Pretty Poison. And guys, look, 
I got to tell you, my God's honest opinion here is that Pretty Poison would be a less well-regarded episode if it wasn't for Shirley Walker's music. If she hadn't done what she did, like scored that episode the way that she did, I don't think that... I mean, there's a very... I I don't want to sound all Kevin Smith here or anything, but there's a cinematic quality to that episode that I think would be absent if it wasn't for Shirley Walker. So, or, or at least whoever scored that episode, which I assume is Shirley Walker, but maybe I'm wrong. But whoever scored that episode, it would be a lesser episode. And certainly a different episode if if the music had been different, you know? So it's, it, it's just one of those lessons to you that, you know, the music for this TV show or for that movie or whatever, it it's not just background filler stuff. It is saying something here, you know? Another good one is the Clock King. Again, what we have here is a is a villain who's honestly, I would say he actually is a lot more sympathetic than a lot of the sympathetic villains on the show, simply because of the fact that Temple Fugit started off as a guy who maybe he was kind of an asshole, but he was an asshole that got results. I mean, he ran his company. He was basically honest from the looks of things, and something very unfair and very unfortunate happened to him. So. And it was all just really a big misunderstanding. Now, the choices he makes as a result of uh, of what had happened to him, obviously this is not to be morally condoned or anything like that, but you can see where the guy's coming from, you know? From there, you get Beware the Grey Ghost, which, let's face it, be, uh, you know, Adam West makes that episode, you know? I, 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 I can't help thinking that this would be kind of an also-ran of Batman the Animated Series if anybody else had voiced Simon Trent which is to say the actor who plays the great ghost in Batman, the animated series, this would be a lesser, a less well-regarded episode, put it that way. Cause when you think about it, it's basically Batman foiling a terrorist, you know, a bomber who uses toys as his motif, you know, but it's, I don't want to go so far as to say paint by numbers, but Adam West just kind of brings this extra dimension to the episode that, in my opinion, kind of really carries it over the top, you know, in terms of quality. And, I don't know, plays for me. Harley and Ivy, that's another fun one. Perchance to Dream. This is another chance to get inside of Batman's head. You know, at the core of his being, what does he want from his life? And I think the only rational analysis you can really have of Batman and you know, his deepest, darkest desires is that his life as Batman is fundamentally not what he wants. This is not what he wanted for his life. And I think really the same can be said of Superman, but honestly, this isn't really about Superman. This is supposed to be about Batman. So, but I think this can be said of really a lot of characters, even DC characters. They didn't necessarily choose this life. They didn't necessarily want this life. And if they could have had, if they could have been given their druthers, maybe they would have preferred something else, you know? And it's interesting to think that, you know, for as cool as this iteration of Batman is, and he is cool, this is still not necessarily what he wanted for himself, you know? That works for me. Next up comes the cape and cowl conspiracy. And guys, I'm going to have to throw myself upon y'all's mercy here and just say, guys, I had no friggin' idea that this was actually an Elliot S. Magan Batman story. It was originally, it, it was adapted from the comics. I had no friggin' idea about that, you know, but this was, 
I don't know why, but I kind of liked the idea of Batman playing both sides, you know? And I can't help thinking this sort of influenced this idea of Bat-God, who's got contingency plans for everything. I don't really like... it. I mean, I understand that characterization of Batman more now than I did a couple of years ago, God knows, but I I understand that characterization. I'm just not overly fond of that characterization. But I do very much like the idea a Batman playing both sides against the middle because ultimately what he's trying to do here is extract a confession from somebody from Wormwood and so everything that he does in this episode is basically a means to that end you know uh, trying to get Wormwood to confess to what he's done and everything else that happens in this episode all of the fights all of the narrow escapes and all that stuff is really just bullshit designed to get Wormwood into a position where he's comfortable confessing his crimes to Batman in disguise. And I like the idea of Batman using methods other than his fists to get the job done. I mean, he's not afraid to kick some ass when he needs to, you know, but that's not necessarily his first resort. Some people, some perps, require a different approach, and that's what I like uh, about this iteration of Batman, that he would, he was that creative. He could go undercover and do these types of things and basically take people down that way. He didn't have a one-size-fits-all approach, you know? That works for me. And then you get into The Strange Secret of Bruce Wayne, which is really the last one on my list. And, you know, I've got a couple of little bullet points for that, but now that I think about it, you know, I know at some point I'm going to do an episode or maybe a bunch of episodes about Batman the Animated Series, and so I think I want to actually save my my remarks about the strange secret of Bruce Wayne for that. But I will say, though, that I very much like the gestalt of this episode, you know, like the core franchise of what this episode's all about, which is to say Batman basically having his secret, in effect, stolen from him by an outside party. I mean, if this sounds a little similar to Batman Forever to any of you, well... You're not the only one. So it kind of says something, actually, about how much influence Joel Schumacher actually did take from comics, because this actually comes from the comics, too. And certainly this episode of Batman the Animated Series is very well regarded, but I think it actually kind of says a lot about how much Joel Schumacher owes to comics, owes to Batman the Animated Series. I mean, there's an unsung fucking debt there that the more Batman comics I read, the more I realize Joel Schumacher... He gets a a very unnecessary amount of crap from people. So, anyway, there's really no beginning or or end to this. It's just the comics I was reading that are really the uh, subject matter for today were released about six or so months before Batman the Animated Series debuted, and I've just got such fond memories of Batman in this vintage of his publication history. You know, this was... This was just such an inspired time, you know, for me as a Batman fan, as a budding Batman fan, in fact. And there, I just got such fond memories, and I just truly love this era. So that, I think, is pretty much it for me in this segment. So be right back to talk about some more Batman comics after these messages.
I'm back now, and I'm ready to start talking about really the the primary subject of this episode, the focus of it, which is Detective Comics number 644, number 645, and number 646. This is a three-part story entitled Electric City. Now, this is one of those stories that literally I go back to day one with it. You know, I picked these issues up off the shelf, and I don't know why, but those comics that you pick up off the shelf when you're a kid, sometimes those can have the strongest nostalgic power to them. I, I'm not going to even try to understand, but for some reason, those are the ones that really stick with you, you know? And just, you know, in general, the time that this, that this stuff was coming out, the actual cover date for Detective Comics number 644 is May of 1992. The on-sale date is April 7th of 1992. So, basically, I would have been finishing up the fifth grade. So, I was... I was 11 years old when these comics came out. And, you know, fifth grade was just a kind of a weird time to begin with anyway. You know... I think that this was one of those this was this was one of those times in life where it's like you can look back on it and think this is the end of something, you know? And fifth grade was pretty much it because of the fact that I look I don't want this to sound like melodramatic or whatever, but it's like wow, you know, this is the last time when we are all children, you know, from here on in. We're all going to be, a, you know, grown-ups to varying degrees, you know? Like, some people just grow up way too fucking fast. You know, they've seen too much in life, you know? As children, they just saw too much of the ugly part of real life. And so, that's, that's that. But the other thing is, you know, like, in fifth grade, I don't remember there really being, at least not totally, I don't remember there being you know, cliques as such, you know, like popular and not popular children. I don't remember that. Maybe it was, maybe it was going on, but I don't remember that being a huge thing, you know? And then starting in the sixth grade, yeah, absolutely. That was, it was like it was a different world all of a sudden, you know? And you can't be seen in public talking to so-and-so because such-and-such, you know? And it was just a weird and fucked up time, you know? And so... It's strange to think, but, you know, one of my clearest memories of just the general era in which I picked up Detective Comics number 644, and really all of these issues, but that's what I'll just use as my example. I had kind of a man cave set up in my in my room, because, you know, when we moved to Houston, I finally got a, huma, a room of my own. Instead of sharing one with my, with my brother, I actually got to have fucking my own room. Right, so I had a Ninja Turtle poster, I had a couple of Superman movie posters, I think, that I got from a Superman uh, Superman 4 poster book that came out, like, years before this. But I just had kept, kept on to that, held on to it all those years. So I had those posters up, and I had uh, a, a TV and a VCR set up in my room. Now, I didn't have, I didn't have the ability to watch actual TV, like, 
broadcast television. I didn't really have the ability to do that. But then I didn't really want to do that because, you know, then as now, there just really wasn't a whole lot on TV that I wanted to watch. You know, I wanted to watch my cartoons, and then that was pretty much it. You know, so I would, you know, when I would get home from school, I'd usually have a tape full of uh, cartoons, uh, stuff like, um, stuff that was big at the time. Let me think. I think Tiny Toons, that was a thing. Tailspin was a going concern. There was Darkwing Duck. You know, there was a lot of stuff that was going on. And that was really what I wanted to watch. That, and, and then, you know, you, when you move away from stuff like cartoons, I guess I was kind of into Herman's Head. Apparently, I'm the only one in the world, by the way, who fucking remembers Herman's Head. But it was basically this, uh, a story about... He's just another... Uh, I guess worker bee in an office you've seen in a thousand times in a thousand places. And what makes it interesting though, is that different parts of his psychology would take the driver's seat at any given moment. And they never come right out and say so, but you get the idea. It's kind of a division between id, ego and superego and which one of those is motivating his decisions at any given moment. So, and if it's going to help any of you narrow your focus on this a little bit, Yardley Smith, who voices Lisa Simpson, was also on that show. And I just remember thinking that was just a funny show, right? And another show might have been, let me think. I was kind of somewhat into the USA Network at the time, so I think I was into Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which history will remember Parker Lewis Can't Lose as being a sort of Ferris Bueller's day off, sort of knockoff for television. But the Parker Lewis can't lose was it that was it was I would almost want to call it more like saved by the bell meets theater of the absolutely fucking absurd because there was so much just surreal about it and so it was supposed to be a little bit more sitcommy but not really because it's the USA network and they don't really do sitcoms as such and they were actually a kind of an interesting network back in the early 90s when a lot of their shows were just a little bit different from the usual bullshit that you'd see on regular TV. It something that might be just a committee banged sitcom that shows up on ABC or something like that. It would be a little bit darker and a little bit weirder and a little bit more surreal if it was on the USA network. And so I'd watch stuff like that. And so, you know, I I pretty much had a, a neat little man cave that that, you know what, now that I say it out loud, I realize I've had a setup like that more or less my entire fucking life because I really didn't treat that my room. I didn't really treat it like my room. I treated it more like it was my apartment. And that's, in fact, kind of the way that I thought about it because I would actually lock the door when I would leave, you know, to go to school or something like that. And to get into the room, I would just pick the lock with a, with an ice pick. And then that's how I would get into my room. It was just like unlocking the, your apartment door with your keys. So shit. Wow. I mean, I had never, <laughs> I truly never thought about that before, but man, what does that say about a kid? You know, how, how private a kid must I have been if, if I would lock the door when I fucking left, you know? So, wow. And, and when I say lock the door, I mean the, the, the door to my room. I would lock that door anytime I left because I knew how to pick the lock to let myself in. 
and I was pretty sure that if anybody else in the house knew how to pick a lock, it would take them a lot longer to do it than it would for me to do it. You know, I could do it in just a couple of seconds with those uh, cheap locks, those, uh, the, the, the kind of locks that it's like you spin them on your doorknob, you know, so it's not a deadbolt. It basically, it, it basically prevents you from turning the doorknob over. It's that kind of lock. And then there's this little sliver, this little hole at the end of the doorknob on the exterior. And all you have to do is just basically slide the toothpick in, uh, not the toothpick, the uh, ice pick, you know, into the opening, kind of angle it down a bit. That would uh, press the locking mechanism in. All you have to do after that is just turn the knob, let yourself in. Easy peasy. Do it in less than five seconds. And that's indeed how I would do it. And God, you know, I hadn't even thought about it. And sometimes, you know, in life, it's like you, you don't really understand yourself in some, in some ways, or you don't really understand that maybe the stuff that you do is a little unusual until you say it out loud. And you're like, golly, I was a weird fucking kid. (sighs) Well, here we are. So anyway, and like I say, it was just kind of a man cave. And I even had, you know, secret hiding spots for Let's face it, every kid has contraband, you know? Once you get to a certain age, every kid has... Unless you're like some kind of a Richie Cunningham type of kid, every kid has some kind of, you know, contraband. He's got something that his parents don't want him to have. And so for me, my contraband was... I had... It was a Playboy pen. And if you hold it upside down, then the the girl that's printed on the length of the uh, her photograph that's printed on the length of the uh, on the length of the pen it looks like she's wearing a bikini but when you hold it right side up you could see her uh, bathing suit just kind of drop away because it's it I guess it's ink or something I don't know but it basically is it, it's set up in such a way that her bathing suit just kind of falls away and it's <laughs> anyway so there was that. And uh, I was a reckless kid. What can I tell you? So I had that. And let me think. I had, I think, a couple of issues of, or or rather one issue of, uh, actually, I don't even think it was, no, this wasn't an an issue. This, I think, was, was it an issue of Playboy? Now, see, I'm trying to figure out. I know that I had an issue of Playboy at one point. And I also know that I had the, much later on, I know for sure that I had the Anna Nicole Smith um, Playboy calendar, but I don't remember what order I got stuff in or, or where, you know, you know, when it happened or anything like that. But I know for sure I had those two things at different points. So, like I say, my room was just kind of my man cave. But without question, the centerpiece of all of, of, all of that stuff, undeniably, was my comic book collection. Now... At that time, you know, to say that it was a collection as being, I think, a little overly generous. I think I had something like 50 or 60 comics or something like that. And so I basically had this. It wasn't exactly a briefcase, but I'll just call it a briefcase just because that's probably the easiest way to describe it. This sort of a briefcase looking thing. And uh, it was pretty small because it's a kid sized briefcase, but. And again, it wasn't really a briefcase. It's just it's easier to call it a briefcase than to call it what it in, in fact is. But so, uh, and that's where I would store all of my comics. Now, at the time that these issues came out, um, Detective Comics number 644 and then going on from there, at the time that these issues come uh, came out, that little briefcase I had was starting to 
I was, I wasn't able to close it anymore. You know, basically the comics that I had were such that it just wasn't possible to do that anymore. You know, whereas once upon a time I could fit all of my comics in there and then close the briefcase and then I could seal it. Now I could almost close it, but there's no chance of actually locking it up, you know, the way that you're supposed to. So that was pretty much the setup I had and that's where I kept my comics. And the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about, you know, the briefcase is because this, you know, putting Detective Comics number 646 in there was, that was the moment when the damn done broketh, right? And I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to uh, lock the briefcase anymore. And then I thought, shit, I guess I've really hit the bed, uh, the big time now, because if I can't fit all of my comics inside of my briefcase. That must mean I have a lot of comics. And guys, let's be realistic. I didn't have a whole lot of comics. But the storage thing that I was using, it was just kind of small. And, you know, it, it, it basically gave me, I guess, a false sense of security as to the size of my comic book collection. And, you know, I, to this day, I truly don't know what ended up happening. Because, because that little briefcase, it was never really meant for what I was using it for. I mean, it was just getting beat to shit like all the time when we'd go on road trips and stuff like that. I'd take it with me. And so I really don't know what ended up happening to that. I would imagine it ended up getting trashed at some point. But, you know, when I start thinking back on it, I really don't remember, you know, ever throwing that away. I don't remember keeping it, but I also don't remember throwing it away either. So, huh. Anyway, so uh, that was pretty much the setup that I had. And what I would do is when I when I would get new comics and then I'd bring bring them home, you know, because sometimes, you know, I would go to my brother's little league games and I could just read my comics there. But assuming that I just picked these things up in passing, what I do is I would come home and I was very... Uh, strict, I suppose, about taking off my shoes the instant I set foot in my room. I don't know why, but it was just really important to me. I only have my socks on and it's stupid. It doesn't make sense. I can't really defend it or explain it or justify it or anything like that. I can just say that was my custom and just move right along. Right. Excuse me while I take a drag off my cigarette. Anyway, so I'd come back, come back home with my loot, pick the lock, let myself into my room, take off my shoes. And what I do is I would sit on my bed with my back against the headboard. And at some point or another, I mean, who the hell knows who bought it, who gave it to whom, whose property this was originally. It may have been mine. I honestly couldn't tell you. But I had this little art kit and it was basically supposed to be a portable desk is what it comes down to. You just basically prop it up in your lap and then, now you have a hard flat surface, but you can open it up and you, and there are, it, it, assuming you're into such a thing, you have, you know, your markers, your, your pencils, your pens, your paper, all that stuff. It's all in there, right? But it's this uh, plastic sort of portable desk. I don't know how else to describe it. And, you know, I didn't really use it so much as a portable desk, at least in terms of like art and whatnot. But what I did do 
was I would use it sort of as a um, portable table, you know, I just kind of sit on my bed and have my comic on that because I wouldn't say that I was fussy by this point about keeping my comics as mint as possible, but I tried to keep them as nice as I possibly could. You know, it, it was kind of like being a doctor, I suppose, you know, first do no harm, you know, and that was pretty much my mentality when dealing with uh, my comics and handling my comics. Now, unfortunately, and you'll see why it's unfortunate in a, in just a minute, but unfortunately for me, when I picked up Detective Comics number 644, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I think what I remember for sure is that it was an episode I did about Spider-Man 2099. So I guess if you're hearing more, interested in hearing more about, you know, this story, or not this story, but this custom, uh, you can listen to Spider-Man, uh, the Spider-Man 2099 episode, and you'll get a little bit of background info there. But basically, I don't like sports. I've never liked sports. I mean, or let me rephrase that. I don't like football. And in the state of Texas, to say that you don't like football, I mean, that's like saying you don't believe in God or something, you know? I mean, that's just a really fucking weird thing to say, you know? Shocking, even. And so, my mom, knowing that I'm not real big on sports, because, you know, guys, I mean, look, I like watching hockey, but... And I like watching boxing, and I kind of like watching tennis, or at least I used to like watching tennis. But apart from stuff like that, I've just never really been, um, I've never really been big on, on sports, right? And my mom, she knew that about me when I was a kid, and so what she would do was she would bribe me into attending my brother's uh, Little League games and his football games and all that stuff. She would say, okay, if you come... I will buy you all the junk food you want, which is maybe the wrong thing to tell your 11-year-old child, but nevertheless, that is that was the arrangement. And so usually what I'd do is I'd get a cherry Coke, or it could be a Dr. Pepper, or, just, or whatever the, the drink was going to be, and I'd get... Oh, God. Do you guys remember PB Max? I cannot be the only one who remembers PB Max. Fucking loved PB Max. Right. And so that was usually my favorite. But, you know, let's face it, that can get a little melty and slimy and just messy whenever you're eating this in hot weather. So sometimes maybe what you need instead of that is Skittles or some kind of uh, sucker, you know, like maybe you need charms or something or just fucking whatever, whatever it's going to be. Right. And, you know, you would get I would get, a you know, a pretty decent diversity of stuff. And I would also get comics. And that is pretty much how I came about getting Detective Comics number 644 because, you know, it'd be kind of nice to have something to read, you know, while I'm watching, well, I'm not even watching this, when I'm attending this game, but God knows, not really watching it. That's, root canals are more fun than watching sports, in my opinion, but anyway. And so, that was pretty much, you know, the setup that we had. It was a, it was a pattern that my parents were, especially my mom, were very well accustomed to. And so that's basically what happened. And so went to the game and it ended up getting rained out. And my copy of Detective Comics number 644 ended up getting a little bit, not not like really wet, but it got a, a little bit of water damage to it. 
And today I look at it and think, well, that gives it character. But, you know, back then I was kind of pissed off. I was a little bit of a fuss budget when it comes to, you know, like I said, keeping my comics neat and everything. So, but I, there was something about specifically this story, Electric City Part 1 from Detective Comics number 644. There was something about this story where... I'd read multi-part Batman stories before from beginning to end. I'd collected them. I'd followed them. But now that Tim Drake had been set to go as Robin and he'd made his premiere and it was this big, glorious moment and, and, and it, it was fun and, and all of this stuff, you know, now that, you know, that moment had, had sort of come and gone, my personal investment in, in Batman comics had really changed in the, uh, you know, the intervening amount of time that it had been like, however long that, like, I think it had been something like a year and a half or something like that by that point. And my investment in Batman comics, like radically changed, right? Whereas before I would, I do think it would be fair and accurate to say that, yes, I was in fact a Batman fan. But then once Tim Drake became Robin, it's like the game sort of changed for me, you know? And instead of just enjoying these comics, I needed these comics. You know, I, I need them. I need to get them, you know? And that was a little bit of a... It, a change of tone, I suppose, because of the fact that... Like I say, I mean... It, it, these Batman comics had always been a priority for me, but they weren't necessarily my top priority. Well, now this comic... You know, and I say this comic, I mean these titles getting all of them and trying to keep as on top of them as I possibly could, this was a big deal. Even by that standard, though, you know, this <clears throat> this idea of, you know, basically taking Batman comics more seriously since Tim Drake had become Robin, that sort of took a turn starting in this issue, right? Where what I eventually came to realize is that I fell in love with Chuck Dixon's work on Batman, and at the time, I really couldn't have articulated it. I just knew that if I saw Chuck Dixon writing a book, a, a Batman comic, I was likely to be interested in it. And all the more so if Tom Lyle was the artist. And so seeing this here, this is the beginning of a multi-part story. So that's appealing. Number two, Robin is definitely clear and representing on this cover, so that's number two. This, this comic is written by Chuck Dixon and drawn by Tom Lyle, so there's another, another third element going on there. And, it's, and the other thing is just Detective Comics. Again, I don't think I could have put it into words at the time that all this stuff was coming out, but what I've come to, under, come to understand is that Detective Comics really was the better Batman title. I mean, yeah, you know, Batman, by which I mean the monthly comic book called Batman, is it probably outsells Detective Comics every single month. I wouldn't be surprised at all to find out about that. All right. But that having been said, you know, there's a... There was, there was always something about the Detective Comics issues that maybe it's just that the creative teams didn't have as much pressure on them to, you know, hit big sales numbers as the monthly Batman did. 
that they could tell, you know, just different types of stories. I don't know. All I know for sure is that for whatever reason, it's always been easier for me to get my head around Detective Comics than it has, than it has been Batman. And I'm not going to pretend that this is a rational thing to say or that, or even that I'm right. I'm just saying that when you look, at least when I look back at, at you know, the publication history of Detective Comics and Batman, what I kind of have to realize is that at least in my lifetime, hands down, without question, Detective Comics is clearly the more consistent book, you know, of the two of them. You know, there was just all kinds of weird and wacky bullshit that was happening in, in the monthly title Batman or because I can't really call it adjectiveless Batman because that doesn't make sense. But the monthly Batman, it was it was all over the map. I mean, there were times when it, it would reach the heights of greatness, you know, and I speak here of things like uh, Batman year one or let me think there was a a, a a two-part joker story that came out in the like 1990 1991 something like that like basically batman 450 and 451 which i don't know as i'd go so far as to call that great especially since it was drawn by latter day jim apero but it was nevertheless you know it was good you know but then you'd also just get some some just really weird bullshit coming out and stuff like this was just fundamentally less of a problem with detective comics which maybe wasn't always as great <clears throat> although i put the alan grant and norm brayfogle run on detective i put that up against anything anything anybody's ever done i put it up against i put it up uh, the alan grant norm brayfogle run up against anything because of the fact that you know that was sort of my introduction to batman that's my batman you know and, so, and to me, they're just the quintessential Detective Comics team just because of the fact that's where they started out together, you know? So, like I say, Detective Comics just seems to me, you know, in the final analysis to be overall more consistent. So that was an important selling point for me. You know, I like the... Plus, I just like the idea of collecting a book called Detective Comics, you know? And it features Batman. And if you just hear the title of it, you wouldn't know that necessarily the Detective Comics is about Batman. But those in the know, well, we know. So there was also, I guess, the hipster element to it. So, I don't know. All around, Detective Comics has just always been... That's always played better for me as a fan than monthly Batman has. So you guys are welcome to make of that whatever you will. So anyway, though, to get into the story itself, this is Detective Comics number 644. And let's see, the cover date is, like I said before, May of 1992. The on sale date is April 7th, 1992. Cover price is a dollar. Just let that sink in. One fucking dollar. But yeah, so Detective Comics number 644. And the this is Electric City Part 1, title of which is called Wired. Synopsis is as follows. Professional thief and killer Elmo Galvin is captured by Batman minutes before his escape from the United States and swiftly sentenced to death by electrocution. Years after his supposed execution, however, Galvin resurfaces with a lethal electrical weapon and a vendetta against the five men who had watched his execution. 
After he succeeds in killing two of them, Blackgate uh, Prison's former warden and his own defense attorney, the police and Batman begin investigating. During these events, Commissioner Gordon also considers proposing to Detective Essen, that is to say Sarah Essen. Unbeknownst to any of them, however, there is a third interested party, a new electrocutioner looking to make a name as a vigilante by apprehending Galvin. Eventually, Batman tracks Galvin down to the sewers, but is knocked unconscious by the electrocutioner's shock uh, before he can actually apprehend Galvin. Upon hearing Batman's radio connection short out, a worried Robin charges into the sewers after his mentor. To be continued. And so, what did I think? Well, literally, from page one, this, this comic grabbed me. Now, Guys, I, my personal theory, and maybe I'll get more into this some other time, but my personal theory is that Tom Lyle is actually a really good artist when he draws something for DC. But I don't know what happens. The minute he starts drawing shit for Marvel, as God knows he would ultimately end up doing, it's, I don't know what happens, but it's like the quality level of it would just go down somehow. You know, but I've always enjoyed his, his Batman work quite a bit. And he definitely brings home the bacon because right here on page one, you've got Batman leaping out of the rafters in this building and his cape is spread out wider than Manhattan behind him. And it's just a really neat moment. And basically what ultimately comes out as we work our way through this little action set piece here where Batman jumps around and beats the shit out of bad guys and all this other just really cool Batman stuff. Like there's this moment right here on page two at the very bottom of the page, last panel, he just ninja kicks this, this one guy right in the face. And it basically, there's this liquid that's come, that's coming out of his mouth that it's colored blue, which almost makes you think it's spit. But I think this is actually supposed to be red and that's supposed to be blood, but whatever. It just looks fucking amazing. That's the kind of stuff Batman does. And I just love it. So, but as uh, you as you work your way through this little action set piece here, what you realize is this is actually a flashback, which is why he's working alone. I'm guessing he didn't have a Robin available to him at the time that this was going on. So this is just a really well done, well written, well drawn scene. And there's this internal monologue that uh, Galvin has. He says... He basically lists off all the people that are responsible for taking him down, including Batman. He's like, well, look, I mean, this is just what Batman does, so I, I can't be mad at him. And uh, the my friends that, that ratted me out and I, and I took the fall for all murders, well, I can understand. I would have done the same thing in their place. And the judge and the jury, can't get too mad about them. The guy that put me in the chair, hey, it's a job. But the sickos who came to watch me ride the lightning... Them I hate like sin. And that should pretty well give you an idea of who the target of this guy's uh, vendetta, will, or the targets of this guy's vendetta will be, right? Galvin is basically going after everyone that uh, came to witness his execution, you know? And when you think about it, I mean, in the unlikely event that you should somehow survive your own execution, somehow, yeah, I could see being kind of put out about that now. I'll be coming back to that, you know, surviving one's own execution. I'll be coming back to that in just a moment. But basically what we get is it's almost like this is an expository type of murder going on here where 
Galvin basically uh, kills this uh, his former defense attorney. Uh, and this is on, I don't think number these fucking pages. Come on. Well, whatever the, the page on which he, uh, kills his defense attorney as he's working in a greenhouse. That's when he kills his defense attorney who is working in a greenhouse. And it, this is sort of like an expository, uh, murder in that we need to get an idea of number one, just how pissed off Galvin really is. Number two, how serious he is about, about killing these people. And then also give, Batman, Robin, and the police, a starting point with their investigation. So from there, we get over to whatever, I guess, page number next, where Batman and, and Tim sort of have a, a an interesting little heart-to-heart with one another, you know? Batman says, and they're swinging around through the city, right? And Batman says, I got tired of sitting in the car listening to the scanners. I needed a stretch. I needed to see the city, Robin. And Robin says, it's beautiful, the lights. And Batman kind of cuts him off and says, the dark. The night hides what this city has become. It's a magnet for all that's corrupt and mad. But I love this town. And that kind of says a lot about Batman, you know, that on some level, I have to believe that Batman, his motivation for doing the stuff that he does has a huge amount of selfishness to it. He's doing this because he needs to do it, you know? And I stand by that. And then there's also, I guess, a little bit more of an altruistic angle. He wants some eight-year-old kid living in the city to not have to experience the same uh, shit that he did when he was eight years old. And so there's that. But the other thing is, you know, just loving this city, you know, in in a weird kind of way, enjoying this place as his home. Does that make sense? I mean, that's not really something that I associate with Batman. I mean, you know, it's more often what writers want to do is is sort of write Batman's mission as being sort of like his curse. And that's not really the vibe that we get here. This is something that he does. Like, I, I, I think it's totally justifiable to say that Batman does what he does. Because on some base psychological level, he needs to do this. But, you know, there is a sort of, I guess, personal angle to it for him where he loves this city. And he likes, he enjoys seeing it from, let's face it, his unique perspective, right? That just fucking plays like gangbusters for me. I dig that. So, anyway... Basically, what we have here are cops combing over the remains of the greenhouse, and we get basically some more exposition that's going on here. Uh, You know, who it is that's died, the fact that the warden of Blackgate Prison also is dead, and what this could all be about. And then from there, Gordon makes a run for it, and he's already late for his date with uh, Sarah Essen, and it, it becomes pretty clear that what he wants to do is propose. And, you know, coming to this as a reader, like at the time that this stuff was coming out, I wasn't really surprised by the fact that Gordon wanted to, wanted to propose. What I found, I guess, surprising was the fact that he hadn't done so maybe not the instant Sarah comes back to town when she moved back 
in I want to say that was Batman number 458 that's when she moved back to Gotham City I'm not saying that he would have necessarily proposed like the minute she showed up but I'm when you think about it I mean that was quite a that was quite a while before this issue and that was more like a year and a half ago like in real time right so I don't know I mean they've been together this whole time and it just makes you think I think he would have if he hadn't already done it, he would definitely be thinking long term with Sarah. And this is this is a pretty easy subplot that you can wrap your head around, you know. But the other thing is, you know, they end up eating together at a diner. This 24-hour diner. And it looks... I mean, I'm not going to fish my copy of Year One out or anything like that. But this looks so similar to... Uh, the diner that they ate at in Batman Year One. And it just kind of makes you think, you know, is it the same diner? And maybe it is, maybe it's not. I, I think the homage there is, it's clear. It's as clear as it is intentional. And I don't know, it just, it, it works for me. I mean, it's it's not a major part of the issue. It's only part of one page where you see this exterior shot of of Gordon and Essen and they're sitting inside of the inside of the diner munching burgers and stuff. And, you know, it's not a huge moment or anything, but it just kind of makes you think, you know, was that intentional? So anyway, moving right along here elsewhere, we get introduced to the electrocutioner as he's doing an interrogation and trying to get a lead on on uh, Buzz Galvin and basically wanting to track him down and what's going on with that. And so what you get the, what you kind of get clear about sort of early on is that this this guy, Clyde, that the electrocutioner is attempting to use for information, he's dead, and the electrocutioner killed him. So, you know, this is not a guy who's operating on the same moral paradigm as Batman. Which, let's face it, Gotham City only needs one Batman, so if you're going to have another wannabe vigilante running around, he needs to be different from Batman on some level or another. And I kind of like the, I guess I, I, I like the shtick of the electrocutioner as a sort of foil for Batman. I mean, he's every bit as much a vigilante as Batman is, but Batman would never in a million years use this guy as an ally. It just never fucking happened. So in Batman's book, you know, the electrocutioner is as much a problem as anybody else in that wacky city. So I like that. That works for me. So, the other thing, though, that the electrocutioner sort of brings to the table is the fact that being as his powers are based on, or not his powers, his, um, I guess, methods, his suit, his weapons, whatever, they're based on electricity, just like Galvin. It does kind of muddy the water, for a while at least, on the investigation into Galvin. Otherwise, what you're sort of left with is... This is a plot that Batman and the police should have been able to figure out a lot sooner. And so if you have something, you know, somebody like uh, the Electrocutioner running around and sort of muddying the water with killings of his own, now all of a sudden it makes sense that Batman and Gordon would be a little more... They'd be a little bit slower in, in putting all of the pieces together vis-a-vis Buzz Galvin, right? So, I don't know. I found that easy to believe in myself. Now, just moving on from there, we get some extra, uh, some exposition in the Batcave between Batman and Robin. And 
they're starting to basically figure out not so much who the killer is necessarily so much as how he's doing what he's doing and so you know this is i guess really the beginning of criminal investigation this is where it all starts and unfortunately it does start getting kind of muddy almost right away like i say by the elect by the electrocutioner working you know working out there and basically killing people himself and creating all of these other false positives that it it basically is slowing down the real investigation so that works for me another another kind of neat thing and i wish i could tell you the friggin page number but the pages aren't numbered so hmm but i guess this is page this would be i guess page 15 ish around there there's a scene with uh, robin and alfred in the bat cave where robin basically puts in a call to gotham power and light and has alfred uh do basically impersonate a uh a, a field technician and basically just trying to get information on uh, spikes in uh, in uh, various power grids and whatnot. Basically trying to narrow down what exactly it is that's going on with power usage across the city. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, I don't know that Chuck Dixon did a, a whole lot, but he would usually have scenes with Alfred and uh, Tim and they just play so well. I mean, the chemistry that Alfred and Tim have with one another as characters, you know, Tim, this sort of not quite irreverent, but he's uh, at times a little bit fly by the seat of his pants uh, type of a guy uh, paired with Alfred, who, let's face it, is a little bit more buttoned down and he doesn't really do any work in the field. And... Now here you have Tim drafting Alfred because he's he's inherently an actor into the impersonation, the scam that he's running on Gotham Power and Light. And this is just, I find it, it's just, it's amusing. It's amusing to me. So anyway, from there we get a, kind of an exposition scene where uh, Tim makes contact with Batman and they do sort of an information exchange. You know, Tim lets Batman know where there's been heavy grid usage, and Batman lets Tim know that there may actually be two killers going on here. And so they agree to uh, a, a common meeting place and then head out from there, after which we cut to a scene of Galvin basically electrocuting rats to death, which when you think about it, I'm not a big fan of rats, like sewer rats myself, but you kind of need to be a special brand of mad to just kill rats, especially with electricity, for no reason. But anyway, so after that, Batman manages to track Buzz Galvin down, and the fight's on. Uh, basically, Batman, without question, could beat the shit out of, out of Buzz Galvin in a fair fight, but the problem is this is not a fair fight. Buzz Galvin has all of that electricity uh, zipping around, and it's you know Batman isn't wearing insulated gear, so it's everything he can do just to keep just to keep up, you know. And so there's a sense in which it's a little bit of a stalemate, and that actually may be where where things stayed, except that the electrocutioner sneaks up on Batman, zaps him, and basically kills him. I mean, you know, it comes out a little bit more in the next issue that you know what it is that's happened to Batman, but it. Guys, it's not a major spoiler to say that Batman does, in fact, die here. 
you know so and that's basically the end of the issue and the thing was it's like the full extent of the cliffhanger isn't really made clear until you actually pick up uh, detective comics number 645 and that's when you find out that batman's heart has stopped and that's when you realize really what uh, what the real peril of the first couple of pages of the next issue really comes down to you know so very well done and plus just the way that this is uh drawn this very last page here with batman unconscious in that nasty ass sewer water with electrocutioner uh, standing sort of spread eagle right above him uh, basically saying if this creep's going to be taken offline it's going to be the electrocutioner who doesn't uh and it's just very well done really I, this is just a really well drawn page in fact i'd almost want to say that you could use this as kind of prosecution's exhibit a anytime you want to defend tom lyle when people say that his art is supposedly bad or something like that as i've seen people say well you know a bad artist isn't capable of drawing this page right here guys so fucking checkmate yeah just a sec while i take a drag off my e-cig Anyway, so that, I think, is pretty much it for Detective Comics number 644. Now, as to Detective Comics number 645, let's just flip over to it here. Excuse me while I vamp for time a little bit. Uh, Detective Comics number 645, this is Electric City Part 2, the title of which is Grounded. And I realize now I didn't actually give the full, like, the proper credits here, so forgive me for that. Writer is Chuck Dixon, penciler is Tom Lyle, inker is Scott Hanna, colorist is Adrienne Roy, letterer is John Costanza, editors are Denny O'Neill and Scott Peterson. Oh, and the cover artist for all of these is Michael Golden, who, by the way, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting, and he's a, just a great guy, so something to be aware of there. Now, as to the story synopsis, this is, like I say, Electric City Part 2, title of which, again, is Grounded. And story synopsis is as follows. Upon finding the unconscious Batman, a horrified Robin realizes that no long that Batman no longer has a pulse. Enraged, the boy Wonder uh, catches up with the electrocutioner and coerces him into restarting Batman's heart with his shock gloves. The electrocutioner is reluctant but eventually agrees, especially after Robin kicks his ass a little bit. And sure enough, after a few false starts, Batman is successfully defibrillated. As the electrocutioner flees, Robin takes Batman back to the Batcave. Despite his injuries, Batman remains determined to solve the recent electrocution murders, and using information over, overheard from the electrocutioner, Batman and Robin finally connect the murders with Elmo Galvin and inform the police. From this information, Commissioner Gordon deduces that Galvin's remaining targets are the commissioner, or rather include the commissioner himself, as well as Judge Haggerty, who'd sentenced Galvin, and also Guy Driscoll a reporter who'd covered Galvin's execution. A police squad is sent to protect the judge while Batman and Robin keep watch over Driscoll. In the meantime, Galvin reminisces over how his botched ex execution had destroyed his nervous system and how a suicide attempt had, ironically enough, rejuvenated him. His body can now move freely, but only if there is electricity running through it. 
Knowing that the authorities now know his identity and his vendetta, he hurries to the Gotham Gazette's offices to kill Driscoll. The electrocutioner, meanwhile, stumbles into a police ambush at Judge Haggerty's house and begins attacking policemen. Upon seeing Galvin, Batman and Robin are able to maneuver Driscoll out of the Gazette building, but Galvin begins to draw power from a nearby billboard and is ready to kill all three of them with his next discharge. To be concluded. So, what did I think? Well, again, starting right here on page one, you get this kind of, this is sort of like a suspense thriller moment of the comic, because what you see is a full page splash of, in the lower corner, you see Batman's hand sort of barely stretching into the uh, the panel, while in the background... And near the top of the panel, you see Robin, who's found Batman, has basically shit himself over the fact that, hey, Batman is dead. And so there's a there's a big back and forth going on now with um, Robin and the Electrocutioner. They talk shit to one another. But guys, let's face it. The Electrocutioner is just fundamentally no match for Robin. He's He's got that wooden staff and he's wearing his insulated gear. There's just no way that... There's really no way that the electrocutioner is really able to get the drop on Robin here. And Robin, Robin actually kicks him in the face, looks like a, uh, a good four times uh, during the course of this fight. Um, and it just kind of emphasizes the fact that, you know, yeah, Tim Burton, uh, not Tim Burton, <laughs> forgive me. Tim Drake is nothing to fuck around with when it comes to, you know, these fights. I mean, he can definitely take care of himself, but at the same time, he's not a bully. You know, he's not beating the shit out of the electrocutioner just for the sake of doing it. You know, there's an objective that Tim is trying to achieve here, and the only way to do it is to kick the electrocutioner's ass until he agrees to to do what he needs to do. So they successfully defibrillate Batman. It takes a few... Uh, a few... Uh, Basically, they have to do it a few times, but eventually it works. And later, you know, what comes out is, you know, Bruce's heart was dead. You know, I mean, his heart was stopped and he wasn't breathing. He was dead. Okay. You know, it wasn't that, you know, he was zapped into unconsciousness or anything like that. Motherfucker was dead. Now, Bruce later goes on to clarify saying, well, look, I was clinically dead but you guys brought me back before there was any permanent damage. And Alfred even makes a point of saying, you know, it's kind of fucked up that Bruce is making a distinction between clinical and biological death. You know, now, I don't know about most of you, but my guess is if you get zapped by electricity and your heart fucking stops and then somebody defibrillates you and brings you back, you're probably going to take the rest of the day off, I would imagine, you know? But that's not really what Bruce is doing here. And this is one of those times when you can kind of buy into, I guess, Bruce's drive and his determination to to bring this case to a conclusion. Because, you know, there are some times when he's been shot into, he's been shot to spaghetti or he's been chewed up and, uh, or he's got broken limbs or something like that. And, you know, Bruce is basically saying, I'm going back out there. Well, 
a guy like Batman would only want to go out there and fight if he's in his peak physical condition, if he's got the flu or if, you know, his ribs need to heal or something like that, then he's, he's not so proud that he won't stay home for a while and allow his body time to heal before uh, heading back out there. This is one of those times though, where, you know what, you can actually kind of see where he's coming from. Number one, there are people who are dying left, right, and center here. So somebody has got to do something. And number two, Bruce kind of has a leg to stand on. I mean, yeah, he probably could use some time to recover, but you know, if we end this thing quick, then he'll have that much extra time to rest and get his strength back. But he's not debilitated here. You know, he's maybe not, uh, you know, he's been through a lot, no doubt about that, but it's, it's, you can see that he's not necessarily operating below peak efficiency. It's just his body's been through a hell of a lot in one night, you know? And so, you know, you can kind of see both sides, but you can also see that Bruce isn't fucking insane for not wanting to uh, take the rest of the night off, you know? So another neat little moment is Bruce actually takes a, uh, takes a moment uh, to just kind of pull Tim aside. And uh, he says, we'll act on what you find out tomorrow night. And Tim, you made me proud tonight. Thank you. And Tim, you know, he just got the pat on the back that, you know, he's always wanted, you know, because when, when you think about it in this vintage of his career, what is it that Tim Drake wants? He wants Bruce to be proud of him, you know, and that's exactly what he gets here, you know, because Tim Drake is like the ultimate Batman fanboy. And so for, for, for Bruce, for his idol to say, Hey, you did a good job. You know, that means everything to a kid like Tim. And again, they don't make a huge, they don't make a huge deal out of it here, but it is nevertheless clear on Tim's face that, yeah, this, it meant everything to hear Bruce say this, you know? So anyway, <sighs> moving on from there, we basically get, uh, an expository scene where, uh, Batman and Robin pay a visit to Gordon. Who's kind of having trouble right now with Sarah. She just wants some time alone with him. And you know, when you're, let's face it, when you're the commissioner of the police force, there's always one more thing that needs doing. And so really the issue here is from a certain standpoint, Gordon just isn't making time for Sarah. So anyway, notwithstanding, we basically get a little bit of an expository dialogue dump here where everybody trades information with everybody else so that we can move on to the next phases of the story. Gordon needs to know what exactly it is that we're up against, you know, with Buzz Galvin on the loose looking to kill everybody that attended his execution, right? And speaking of that, Buzz is elsewhere, even now, dreaming of his own execution. And it basically comes out in the course of this dream slash flashback that he he didn't die. He somehow survived his execution. He didn't die. And he says, I was ruined, but alive. My central nervous system was shot. I was partially paralyzed under the state, uh, under the laws of the state. I could not be executed again. And 
I'm just gonna have to put the brakes on this and say that, you know, I realize this is a fictional world and on top of all of that, who's to say what state Gotham City is in? But guys, there is no state out there where if they have the death penalty, they can only try doing it to you once. And then if you somehow survive, well, I guess that's it. No, the, the state's mandate is to, is to execute. Um, I don't even know what to, these people, you know, these uh, felons, the state's mandate is to execute uh, them. And if that means they have to, fire up the electric chair six times and they have to fire up the electric chair six times. That's what they're going to do, you know? And so that having been said, you know, if you view that as a flaw with the story and then you fix that flaw, well, then you fucking have no story. So whatever, basically what you need to believe is that Gotham city is located in a state that number one has the death penalty and number two, their laws are so strict or one could say so cruel that the state is not allowed to finish the job if they, if they're unsuccessful in their first attempt. And so that's basically what you have to accept in order to get into this story. And so whatever, it's not worth getting mad over, I suppose. And so basically Galvin partially paralyzed, manages to throw himself out of his bed and he chews on a power cable in an attempt to kill himself. But what that does is that zaps his central nervous system and brings it back to life and ends his paralysis. And so what he's done since getting out of the hospital is take his corny origin and set out on a path of revenge. And so that pretty much leads us into uh, Gordon announcing to uh, the other the rest of the police department, which apparently consists of nobody but Bullock, Montoya, and Essen, who exactly the perp is and who the next uh, targets are going to be. And so everybody swings into action from here. So Batman and Robin stake out the Gotham Gazette and are basically assigned to protect uh, Driscoll. And that ends up... Well, actually, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Elsewhere, the police stake out Judge Haggerty's residence, and that's where the electrocutioner shows up and wrecks shop on everybody. Meanwhile, back at uh, the Gazette, the power goes out and Galvin makes his move. So Batman and Robin crash in and pounce on Galvin. And from here, the fight is on, right? At this point, the objective isn't necessarily to defeat Galvin. I mean, yeah, they want to do that. But more than anything, what they need to do is save Driscoll's life. And so that's really the, the main, I guess the main goal that uh, Batman and Robin are, are, are working with here. And when you think about it, taking, taking Driscoll outside ended up being just about the dumbest thing that Robin's done all year, but we'll get to that in the next issue for right now. This issue ends on, uh, it's a little bit of a confusing type of cliffhanger because you see Galvin and he's standing in front of this giant neon sign and it's not necessarily immediately apparent that he's leeching electricity from it it just looks like he's he zipped across the street from the gazette to the neon sign and is standing there for fucking no apparent reason and so what what's going on here and so it just again this is this is a cliffhanger that doesn't really get fully expanded upon 
until the next issue and that's when you when you find out what the real stakes of uh, of this thing are so it's weird how you can say that about so much of these these issues that i'm talking about here but anyway whatever that pretty well leads us into detective comics number 646 and let's see here bringing it back up yeah here we go so cover date is july of 1992 june uh the on sale date is june the 2nd of 1992 cover price is a buck 25 so there's been a price increase since the last issue isn't that always the way this is electric city part three title is systemic shock and the credits are the same as before so i won't bother repeating them here synopsis is as follows Despite Batman and Robin's best efforts, Galvin successfully kills Driscoll with a long-range electric bolt and then flees to pursue his next target, Commissioner Gordon. This information is quickly relayed to the rest of the police department, who, along with the executioner, quickly rush to police headquarters. In spite of the looming danger and Detective Essen's warning, uh, warnings, uh, Commissioner Gordon refuses to vacate police headquarters. Resigned to the... To the commissioner's pride and courage, Detective Essen chooses to stay in the building as well. Soon after, Galvin arrives with Batman, Robin, and the electric electrocutioner not far behind. Detective Essen attempts to protect the commissioner from Galvin, but her revolver proves useless against the electric field produced by Galvin's equipment. Basically, he's protected from guns. At that moment, Batman intervenes. While he keeps Galvin occupied, Robin rushes to a nearby fire hose, intending to short out Galvin's equipment. The electrocutioner attempts to stop him, determined to kill Galvin instead of leaving matters to the Bleeding Heart Courts, quote-unquote, quote, the Bleeding Heart Courts, quote-unquote, but a disgusted Robin quickly beats the so-called crime fighter into unconsciousness. Robin then aims the fire hose at Galvin, but discovers to his horror that it's been disconnected. Nevertheless, Robin distracts Galvin long enough for Batman to remove Galvin's battery pack, leaving Galvin completely helpless. Batman's initially furious at Robin for taking an, un an unnecessary risk, but quickly apologizes and congratulates his quick thinking. As Galvin and the electrocutioner are taken into custody, Detective Essen reveals that during the struggle she'd found Commissioner Gordon's uh, proposal ring, and so, Gordon, and so despite Gordon's new reservations, she accepts his proposal. The end. So, what did I think? Well, from the outset, you know, this, I haven't really talked a whole lot about these covers because honestly, they're, they're functional. I enjoy them, but I just, I don't have a whole lot to say about them. I don't mean that as an insult against Michael Golden. I'm just saying that <clears throat> I don't have tons and tons to say about this stuff. But here again, we get another page one, a sort of uh, glory shot of, Batman, Driscoll, and Robin staring across the street at the, at we can't see what, but whatever it is, it's it's lighting up the entire night sky and the building and everything else. So whatever it is, it's kicking off some serious light. Then we see, uh, uh, when we flip over to page uh, two and three, we see this kind of ultra wide splash page shot of Galvin uh, sending an electric bolt clear across the street from one building to another which pretty well vaporizes Driscoll and it leaves Robin basically holding Dr Driscoll's arm. The rest of him has been zapped into oblivion. 
And that's pretty much it for good old Driscoll. So after that, the fight's on. Batman and Galvin uh, duke it out with each other for a while, but uh, Galvin briefly manages to subdue Batman, then makes a run for it. So Bat uh, Robin chases after him, you know, flees, uh, ch chases after him as Galvin, you know, flees, keeps up the pursuit, and basically just tries to, at the very least, stop Galvin, but Galvin's not having it. He basically manages to uh, blow up some trucks and basically cause some mayhem to keep Robin occupied while he makes his escape. Elsewhere, and this, you can tell, really is the, the sort of falling action issue of the story because basically what we see is everybody more or less moving into place and converging on police headquarters since that's clearly where, where Galvin is heading. And so... Batman and Robin, they uh, they save a few people right as uh, the EMS teams arrive, which allow Batman and Robin to then move elsewhere. And after that, we get a, this is a, a little bit of a confusing scene in Commissioner Gordon's office because he's got this really big gun that holds a lot of bullets on his desk. After which uh, Sarah Essen comes into the room, and she she says. I'm not trying to turn you into a coward, James. It's only that you mean so much to me. We're engaged to be, and then she just sort of trails off. And the thing is, they're not engaged. Unless I'm missing something, they're not, they don't get engaged until the end of this issue. And this is only like page four or five. I can't tell you for sure because they don't have numbers on these fucking pages. But anyway, they, you know, they're not engaged at this juncture. So I... The only thing I can figure is that somebody was asleep at the wheel on this one and wasn't paying attention to their business because, you know, she can say that, you know, Sarah S. and she could say that, well, we love each other or we've been together for so long or we've been through so much together, just fucking blah, 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 blah. But to say that we're engaged, no, bitch, you're not. So anyway, somebody's wrong here. And I, I think that somebody in the uh, production office made a goof. Anyway, after this, we basically get the assault on police headquarters where uh, Galvin, the electrocutioner, Batman, Robin, and the entire fucking Gotham City Police Department all basically have it out. And, you know, it's strange to think. I don't actually know what the physics of this would work out to, but I don't think there's any kind of electricity weapon that you can have that would protect you against against uh, 158 grain hollow point bullets or really any kind of bullet. I don't, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that it makes sense from that, from the point of view of kind of, you know, fuzzy comic book science. That's not really science at all, but sounds plausible, but I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it here. I just, I don't see what power that Galvin's electric, magic wand thingy is gonna is gonna provide him so anyway uh there's really not a, a ton of shit to comment upon here just because you know these battle scenes it's they don't really lend themselves as much or as easily to um insightful commentary one might say and so but there is a moment though like towards the end of this thing where batman basically chews tim a new asshole uh Robin says, hey, doesn't the kid get some credit? And Batman pretty much bites his head off and, and says, you were cocky. He could have uh, he could have killed you. 
I might not have been there to save you. You took a chance, you got lucky. And instantly backs off and apologizes. He says, sorry, Robin, I... No, I'm really sorry. I just worry that you'll start thinking of this as a game. And even now, Batman is facing the ghost of Jason Todd, because that's one of the most infamous things that Jason Todd ever said to Batman, you know? All life is a game. But... And that is definitely in keeping with the way that Batman has treated Tim pretty much since Tim joined the team, so to speak, you know, and, you know, officially became Robin. He's been very protective of Tim, and he's also been very quick to take Tim out of harm's way if he thought things were going to be too dangerous, you know, and the fact is he's realizing that Tim is... He's capable, you know, he's not Jason Todd, he is capable, and he doesn't need to be babied as much as Batman had been babying him, you know? And this is just a an important little character moment in that this marks a little bit of a shift in the way that Batman views and treats Tim. This is actually a, a bigger deal than you might think, because like I say, if you've been following the story up to this point, you know, this is pretty, this is part and parcel of how Batman has treated Tim, but starting from here on in, their relationship is going to be, it's going to operate on a, on a, on, I guess you could say with a little bit less of a safety net. You know, Batman's not going to be such a hard ass about keeping Tim out of harm's way. And really, this is the moment where all of that starts. And so, you know, when you start thinking about the amount of bullshit that Batman permitted Tim to do during Nightfall... Well, it actually makes a lot more sense when you start thinking about the fact that the ice had started thawing there long before nightfall ever got underway. So it's 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 just a poignant little moment, put it that way. It's easy to believe in. So anyway, and that is pretty much that. And like I say, these issues are just so fucking sentimental to me. I. I, I would never claim, on the one hand, I would never claim that these that this is the greatest Batman story that anybody has ever written, but man, it just gives you such a flavor for who and what Batman was in this in this era, and it's just, it's a fun little story, and, you know, some, some subplots really do get moved forward. Like I say, Gordon and Essen, they get engaged to one another, Batman, he's starting to take a little bit more of a, of a chill pill now with with Robin and overall it's the Batman books are are definitely undergoing a little bit of a shift as compared to what their status quo had been for a long time up to this point and I think it's overall it's for the best so now as to other things I'm not aware of this uh, of these issues ever having been reprinted everywhere there's nothing listed on Mike's Amazing World about that, so maybe they have been and they're just not listed there, but there's nothing listed on Mike's Amazing World, and I personally am not aware of these issues ever having been reprinted, so my gut instinct is to say these issues, eh, fucking they've never been reprinted, but these original issues, I'm guessing they would go for probably two bucks as back issues, or maybe even less, but certainly how could they possibly be more than two bucks? 
as back issues. So you could get all three of them for uh, $6 plus tax from your LCS. And if you think about it, that's instantly a better deal than getting some new fucking comic book that's coming out these days. So I'd actually recommend tracking these issues down. They're a ton of fun. It's just a fun Batman story. And plus, like I say, subplots do get advanced. And these are these issues are more important than they might first appear. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that these are the... the these are the greatest Batman comics ever, or that these are the most, this is the most important Batman story there's ever been. I'd never make that claim, but these are fun comics. And like I say, subplots do get moved forward here. Things do happen. This isn't, you know, meaningless bullshit that gets uh, covered in these, in these comics. So I, overall, I think it's well worth checking into. And that I think is pretty much it for me this week. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 
Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.